All right, if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 20 today. And we're going to look at a, a really great passage today. And uh, welcome back to our online audience. We had a, an overwhelming response on our live Facebook feed and we're live again. So let's give a shout out to our online crowd. Let's welcome them. Last week, we looked at Paul's ministry in Corinth. And uh, we looked at some of the intimidating environments of evangelism. And uh, what you and I do every week is kind of like Corinthian ministry. It's intimidating stuff. It's the day-to-day stuff where our testimony is on display and uh, we're living our lives and we're living our faith out at the same time. And, And it can be a very intimidating environment, but God can be in that in a big way. Our travels today are going to take us past Ephesus and all that ministry we talked about a few weeks prior. And uh, Acts 20, we know that Paul is on his way back by sea to Syria and Judea. But before he does that, he needs to do one final stop in the region known as Asia Minor. And he's, he's uh, basically going to have, yeah, this one last address in this region. So our passage today is going to be Acts chapter 20, verses 18 to 37. The location is a place called Miletus. Miletus is to Ephesus what Port Mac is to us. It's just down the road, and it's a port town, although not as, a little bit bigger by scale. The elders of Ephesus and that region are gathering for one last amazing pastor's conference. And our passage is going to pick up just as Paul gets to speak for the final time in this region. Let's get into it. Verse 18. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you? From the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among you whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of everyone, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in and among you and will not spare the flock. Even from among your own number, some will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. 
And now I commit to you the, to you to God and the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said. It is more blessed to forgive than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. Now, kids, you guys are going to help me, all right? Kids all over the building. If I'm going to lose track, you're going to keep it for me. So uh, all my little, my major points... As we go along, you guys are going to remind me, you're going to remind the church, and you're going to help us stay on point today. So I'll call on you, so watch out real quick closely here. We're in a very emotional time here. Paul is deeply aware that the audience he's facing right now, he's not going to see again. With that in mind, we have a very different way of addressing this particular audience we have a lot of speeches in the book of acts but this one is distinctly different to the others particularly from paul it's not an evangelistic sermon like many other contexts up to this point and it's not a defense which he will do five times in the text to follow instead we have his only recorded pastoral sermon And it's a thing of beauty that shows Paul's heart for the things of Jesus and Paul's heart for his church, the church of Jesus. As wildly intense a man as he was, Paul was at heart a pastor and discipler of men. And in this passage, he is keen to impart as much as he can to the pastors and the leaders of Ephesus. Many of these people he personally led to Jesus. And he released these people into their ministry work. He had a vested interest in these people that he was speaking to. And as we break this down this morning, and the kids are going to help me, we can see some significant insights into the ministerial makeup of Paul the Apostle. Insights which were intended to be caught by the elders as they assembled at Miletus. Some things are taught, some things are caught. Some things just rub off on other people. Other things are intellectually digested. It's called teaching and catching. The militus guys were catching it, and I believe we can catch these things 2,000 years later today as we engage with the passage this morning. So our first insight is this. I've got four insights to share with you. The first one is simply this. Paul had vision. Paul was a man of vision. Remember that one, kids? Paul was what? Excellent. Help me stay on point. We know in context that Paul is returning from Corinth here. And we see from his last written piece at this point that he he had a set out path that he was following quite closely. The last thing we know he would have written at this point is Romans from Corinth. The evidence of that is found in Romans 15. 
How's this? But now there is no place, no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I've been longing for many years to visit you, that is Rome, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it and they owe it to them. Gentiles had shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings. They owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this fruit, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. Has anybody read that and digested that? Romans is a tough book to navigate. Sometimes we don't quite get to chapter, you know, <laughs> we get to chapter 9 and we kind of go, man. Here's what he's saying. I'm done evangelizing my local neighborhood. Some places are hostile and it's best to keep away. I get it. Other places have good workers stationed that will do better things than I do. And there are loads of workers throughout this whole region right now. If I stick around, I'm going to get bored and I'm going to fall into that awful trap called spiritual retirement. How many know that never happens? But there's a patch of the world to the west that needs Jesus and I'm so keen to get that work started. As he addresses the elders in our main passage, we see that Paul is clearly a man on a mission. He had a wad of cash to give to the Jewish Christians at Jerusalem. There was a famine there that was part of helping the poor there. It was important for him to deliver that personally because he wanted to keep the Gentile-Jewish divide absent, actually keep those ties strong between in the church. And verse 24 of our main passage, he says this, I put the comforts of my own life and desires on hold. And I run the lane that Jesus sets before me to the very end. In fact, in comparison to the plans of Jesus, my own life plans are of little value. That's pretty massive, isn't it? Proverbs 29. We should all know this verse quite well. Where there's no revelation, people cast off restraint. If we unravel the Hebrew, it's something like this. Those that live life without a divinely empowered inner drive will end up exposed and disheveled within themselves. Ministers of the gospel must live with a sense of vision. We're supposed to have a view of the future. We're supposed to have a drive towards a goal that the Spirit is imparting. That's what a minister is supposed to be doing. They're supposed to work with others in finding the will of God and the direction of, that God wants us to go and, 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 and where, where does he want us to head? Who does he want us to turn our eye to, put our hand to? We're supposed to have a sense of vision. We, don't, we do not know for certain whether Paul ever got his vision achieved. There's fleeting evidence to suggest that he may have got to Spain and some even suggest he got as far as Britain. But for the most part, we, most people believe that he didn't get past Rome when it went, go, traveled going west. Our vision should outlast us. 
because God is an unlimited God. If we, he, if we limit what God wants to do in us, I don't think that works. There's supposed to be vision. So Paul had what? Awesome. Okay. Paul, our second insight, Paul had vision and Paul had integrity. Paul was a man of integrity. Titus 2.12, Paul writes that the grace of God is, is, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. In other words, as we live under the grace of God, we become empowered to do the right things which lead to a life of integrity. Proverbs 11.3 says that the integrity that upright guides them and the unfaithful are destroyed by the duplicity. In other words, people who pursue genuine godliness, which affects both their personal and public life, will have integrity and be free from the double standards of the world. Paul was a man who prided himself on the level of personal integrity that he displayed. He was motivated by his calling and his conviction to present Jesus with the greatest fidelity. And his claims in our text show us the efforts he was going to in order to present himself in such a way. We see in this message that he was certain in himself that his integrity shone through. That he'd always sought to teach the truth in as helpful a way as possible. That he'd not shown partiality, particularly between Jews and Greeks but had seen them in equal standing and in, and, and in equal need. He was able to leave the region of Asia Minor with a clear conscience that he had practiced as he was called to do, despite the risk that he preached as he was called, despite the risk to himself. His claim of, having, of being innocent of their blood was indicative of his willingness to point out their sin and their religious errors so that his audience could find repentance. And he was confident in his ethical interaction with those he ministered to, having never abused his power for financial gain. He was confident in his ability to earn his keep and not be a burden to anyone. Integrity in God's ministers is a major thing to get right. And Paul walked in absolute confidence of his standing before God, both public and within the life of the church, as well as in his own backyard. So kids, help me out. Paul had what? First one? Vision. Then Paul has? Oh, we're on it. Cool. Got the back row as well. Our third insight, Paul had the heart of a shepherd. We see in this address a real desire for the good welfare of the church even after he leaves. His biggest worry is that in his place and in his words, savage wolves will be seeking to rip the church apart. Paul was even worried about some within the walls of the church who were poised to strike as well. Now we know in Ephesus there was a a whole industry suffered because of revival in Ephesus. Silversmiths, people who made idols, were losing out big time. So you can imagine a bit of a smear campaign going on. We also know that Ephesus had its issues with falsehood. We know that in, you know, that, you know, in response to the success of Christianity, a riot broke out. 
But also, years after his message, Paul wrote to Timothy and instructed him to stop the false teachers who were rising up. Later in John's epistles and in Revelation, we know that false teachers like the Nicolaitans and the Gnostics were making their presence felt as well. Paul made it a priority here to ensure the elders of Ephesus remained diligent and kept their guard up against all that. And we see that even though he had moved on, even though he wasn't watching personally, he was still taking note of everything. Ephesians 1 and 2 Timothy, these are written while he's away, while he's in chains. The reason for his diligence is simple. He was pastoral. He was a shepherd. He took responsibility for the sheep in his flock. And he did all he could to ensure the flock was cared for by qualified people because he saw the vulnerability of those he ministered to and didn't want them to to simply fend fend for themselves and take their chances. So Paul, help me out, kids. Paul had vision. Awesome. Some deeper kids' voices there. Kids, Paul had? And Paul had? Awesome. Love it. My final one is this. Paul was willing to leave the final word to Jesus. How many know that's a good thing? All right, Jesus gets the final say. I love how this passage ends. There's some subtleties in this which I really like. The elders came to hear a final address from Paul. You know, the flyer going out for the conference said, Paul the Apostle, and he's decorated distinctive you know, things behind him. A number of these elders have traveled quite a way, sometimes even up to a week, to get down to Miletus. These people had deep respect and reverence for Paul. They were devoted to make an effort to get to see him. They would have hung on every word he said. And there is deep emotion going on in this place. Paul delivers an excellent message. Eloquent, insightful, powerful, motivational, emotionally charged. All those great things. But his final address says, one, I'm going to commit you now to God, not to me. And the last line of his sermon is quoting Jesus himself. And instead of saying his final words and doing a mic drop and walking out, boom! He goes, now let's kneel and pray. Let's hear what Jesus wants to say to us all. Christian ministers understand that their wisdom and their understanding of godly things is not their own, but given by the Holy Spirit. The insight I have about Jesus is because he dropped it there and because I've been under the tutelage of faithful teachers who will pass that on. It's not because I suddenly decided I was smart one day. I'm still trying to decide that. 
They also understand that their primary task is to point to their audience to Jesus alone and allow space for him to speak. Like we will at the end of this message, it'll be Jesus let you have the final say. We enter dangerous territory when ministers desire to have the final word on any Christian subject. If we get to the point where we drop scripture or make a Christian point and then go, I showed them, uh-uh. that's not how it works. It's Jesus reveal this to them. The only thing left to do at the end of Paul's address is to pray. We don't know the contents of this prayer, but we can imagine what it is, couldn't we? Submission to Jesus and his will, thankfulness for his love, for his faithfulness to the church, commitment to be faithful ministers even if it get hard, commitment to integrity, commitment to diligent leadership, all those sorts of great prayers. I bet you that's all sort of happening there. So kids, help me out again. One, Paul had. Two, Paul had. Three, Paul had a shepherd's heart. Excellent. And four, Paul pointed to Jesus. Jesus is there. Great. That is four major insights about effective ministers. I'm now going to leave her here and we're going to ponder this a bit together. In fact, I'm going to give a very distinctly Baptist ending to this passage. There are some distinctive Baptist things. This is one of them. You see, as I considered this passage, I was reminded of others. Ones that put us all together applying this. 1 Peter 2.9, for argument's sake. We're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's a very Baptist verse right there. 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. goes on to say this, Since we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us, and we employ you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. The priesthood of all believers. The ministry and message of reconciliation. The role of ambassadors that we all have. I've spoken about the work of ministers this morning, and in particular Paul, with the idea that the Ephesian elders would catch this and that the church of 2016 would catch this too. Here it is. We are all ministers.
living with a sense of God-placed vision is not limited to the senior pastor of your church. There is supposed to be a horizon for all of us to pursue. And the idea of a race and a lane to run, Paul had a, ray, a, run, a lane to run, to run. He saw that in his address in Miletus. But that carries over to us too, Hebrews 12. We're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, so let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In other words, run your race, don't get weary, keep on running. After the other. It doesn't say those who are called to be pastors are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. It doesn't say let the pastor run the race set before us. The Greek idea of us here is an all inclusive word. It's not about us ministers, it's us all together. We all have access to God-placed revelation that drives us to minister in His name. And it's all up to us to seek out what it is and allow it to propel us, to drive us. There is a divine light within all of us. And Jesus said that no one takes that light and puts it under a basket or covers it up. We all have a vision a christian that doesn't have a ministerial drive is like a car without fuel an oil lamp that doesn't have oxygen a ship without a rudder you get in the picture and when we get like that it's a matter of time before our spirit gets all disheveled and we get all all sorts of things will matter more than jesus we need as ministers to find our God-placed drive and pursue it with endurance and with diligence. Since we're ambassadors, our conduct matters. We're ambassadors and we are all ministers. Therefore, the integrity that is sitting on Paul sits on all of us as ministers of the gospel. It's up to all of us to maintain a life of integrity. I've said this before, I stand by it. The world will forgive the flaws of good, transparent people in any setting, but it will have a field day with hypocrisy. Integrity is being transparent about it. You know, if we're flawed, be honest. Don't don't ever try to give the image of perfection because that is not going to hold up anywhere. If we as believers identify publicly with Jesus, then we as his representatives need to ensure our lives back up our claims. We are all ministers. We all have a degree of integrity to keep. As ministers, we all need to be shepherding someone. Christian maturity is an interesting journey. Have you worked that out by now? I have. We are supposed to be on a growing curve where we start as converts 
where we then grow into disciples and eventually become disciple makers. Converts live all about themselves and the grace they receive. Christ died for me. It's all about me. I am forgiven. I am set free. I, 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 me, me, me. Jesus and me, Jesus and me, right? Disciples show a bit more maturity by seeking to become obedient and more Christ-focused. So it's not about me anymore. It's about him. A disciple in the early days when the disciples were following Christ would sit in the dirt when he sat down to speak. When he walked, they would walk so close behind that they would catch every single word that was spoken because the rabbi would only ever say it once. A disciple got so close to their rabbi, got so close to their master that they wanted to glean everything they could and soak up every opportunity to learn. Disciples go, it's about him. The one that Jesus left his disciples with was to be disciple makers. Where the focus shifts from ourselves to Jesus and then to the things that matter to Jesus. Which happens to be other people, lost sinners, new converts, other disciples. It is really hard to be a minister if you remain a convert and refuse to become a disciple. And we often refuse because we don't want the responsibility that comes with growing up. I don't know about you, but I, the way reality hit when it suddenly became an adult was huge. Suddenly I had bills. Suddenly I had bosses to answer to. Suddenly I had timelines to keep. Suddenly I had results that actually mattered. Not so much, you know, my school didn't matter so much, but my work results did. All of a sudden, there's a new level of expectation, a new level of responsibility that comes with growing up. You can't go, gee, I'm going to be 16 again. You have to go, well, I'm an adult. Let's get on with it, right? Same with Christianity. And for those of us who go, yep, all right, let's embrace this growing up thing, the next natural step is to get around somebody else to guard them, to look out for them, to encourage them, to protect them from the wolves. Have you got somebody's back? As a believer in Jesus, have you got someone's back? It's amazing how victorious our life and faith becomes when we commit to looking out for someone else. And ministers have a shepherd heart. We all have a part to play in doing that. And finally, we need to make sure that Jesus has the final say. It's about following Jesus, not ourselves, right? The best way to avoid the trap of codependence and other unhealthy discipleship relationships is to point to Jesus. If you don't want people phoning you every five minutes, what do I do now, what do I do now, what do I do now? It's in your best interest to point them to Jesus, right? I have had one young person that I distinctly remember would phone me like that, would be in contact with me on a regular basis. What do I do now? What do I do now? I indulged that for a couple of weeks and then I kind of went, man, I'm losing sleep over this. 
So I started going, you know what? Jesus is that way. Go over talk to him. The cross, you go, are you still dealing with that sin? The cross is over here. Let's talk about that. The Spirit of God. You, you fearful? Here's the Spirit of God. Engage with that. The more that person did that, the less they called me. It's amazing. Because <laughs> God is faithful. It eventually got to the stage where the phone calls would come at appropriate times, not at two in the morning, after the crisis and the victory report was coming in. The best thing we can do with any ministry situation is to constantly point to Jesus. He must increase. As John the Baptist said, we must decrease. So there you go. What are the four things again, kids? Vision. Switched on crowd. Awesome. Keep those things. We are ministers. And those four things isn't just my job, although I will be committed to that. Don't get me wrong. But it's our role to embrace those four traits. And it's our role to all of us embrace the idea that we are ministers. Repeat after me. I am a minister of the gospel. Oh, I pray, I pray, I pray that you can truly embrace that. No matter how old or young you are, no matter how much energy you have or don't, we can all be ministers to someone. Keep those firmly in heart. And let's be the ministers Jesus is calling us to be. At this point, we're going to switch off from our online audience. See you later, guys. God bless. And now we're going to do some business with the Lord. Let's uh, close in prayer and worship.